I've done it. This show's part of the COBOL Broadcast Network. <laughs> Bloody COBOLs. This show is part of the Goblin Broadcast Network at GBNCOM.com. In a perfect world, wars are fought with miniatures, arguments are settled with dice, and life is all that stuff you do when you're not gaming. The world is not perfect. The Escapist Cast is the official podcast of TheEscapist.com and features discussions on role-playing advocacy, exploring the myths and misconceptions about tabletop RPG and LARP, improving public image and understanding of the hobby, and putting our passion for the game to good use towards improving the world around us. Discover the reality of fantasy games at TheEscapist.com slash EscapistCast. Follow the Path, the Bears Grove Podcast, adult-level discussion of role-playing as a storytelling art at bearsgrove.com. Welcome to part three of the Phil Rucato interview. Just a reminder, this is the third part of a four-part series. The last part will be coming up very shortly. So, thanks very much for listening, and here's part three of the interview. Running time is 36 minutes. Around uh, 2006, I think, when I declared bankruptcy, mm. would have been this is 2008. So yeah, around 2006, when I when I surrendered my uh, my share in uh, in Laughing Pan, um, quit doing Deliria, and declared bankruptcy for the. I'm not even going to go into how far in debt I was at that point. Um, by that point, my attitude was very much, you know, fuck gaming, fuck gaming, and fuck gamers. Because yeah. at that point, I poured five, over five years of, of work and money and inspiration into it. And Delirium did not sell badly. For an indie game, it still sold 5,000 copies, no, no, which is a lot. That's great. For an indie but it, given the production values that we put into it, the energy that we put into it, and he said, most frustratingly of all, the response that it got on a, on a market level. I just ended up being totally sick of it. And that's something I'm just now starting to come out of. Fortunately, that actually, the coming out of it had a lot to do with getting me off with a really good gaming group back in Asheville, North Carolina. Uh, shout out here to my friends, uh, to Nathan, Nathan, Jesse, uh, Alexa, and Jeremy for getting me energized in, in gaming again. Because for a little while there, I just said, you know what? I, I've wrecked my... Because professionally... This is this is something outside of the gaming thing. Professionally, I really ghettoized myself and and lost a lot of potential respect um, for the game work. When uh, when I went to Mythic Journeys, I went with a uh, I went with a, a several boxes of Deliria, and gave copies of it to some of the people who whom I you know who whom had inspired me, uh, Charles DeLint and Terry Wendling and, and um, uh, Stephanie Law and Amy Brown, and with the exception of Amy Brown and um, with the exception of Amy Brown and um, Ari Burke, uh, Brian Frout, collaborator on several books, the response was, wow, this is pretty, but I don't do that gaming thing. Yeah. And I found professionally that I was, I was flat out dissed by a number of, of editors and prospective employers because, well, we do real writing here. Like, I'm a real writer. I've collaborated on novels. I've published over a dozen short stories. I've been a columnist for almost a dozen magazines. And, and I've, you know, worked on or published 
over a hundred books. Those that's real writing, and you know, but because it was game stuff, it didn't count. Right. Yeah. No. I and, believe me. I I I am right there with you. Um, I've had situation. Oh, go ahead. Yeah, I've had agents tell me, um, you know, that's great if you've got another novel, I'll take a look at it, but I don't represent people who just have one novel and it's a genre novel and, you know, uh, big deal. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's really hard. like, but I've got like all these credits. No, I don't care. Yeah, exactly. It's it's because and one of the reasons uh, to to be uh, to be fair, one of the reasons that people give so little respect to gaming is because gaming and gamers give so little respect to themselves as a medium Mm. um, that people continue to... Oh, go ahead. I can hear all my indie gaming friends go, what? (laughs) Because... (laughs) But the indie gaming gaming people are the people who are there on the cutting edge. They're the the folks who are... Um, they're the they're the few, the proud, the folks who want more and want better, and they're the folks that you and I have been designing for and have been writing for all these years. But it's very hard to make a living from playing to that sure. crowd. Sure. Um, with Deliria, one of the reasons that I got discouraged um, after doing Deliria was I felt I'm going to do at the you know at the top production level. I'm going to do the RPG that people have said could be done. I'm going to put the art out there, not just you know the art is in the illustration, but I'm going to I'm going to do the indie game that looks like uh, that has the production values of a um, you know of, of a mainstream game. Mm-hmm. And a number of fans went, "Wow, this is fantastic!" And a whole lot, whole lot of people. Um, Fans as well as uh, uh, fans as well as industry people just said, "Oh, that's neat! Here, wow, look, D and D three point five, wah!" And right. I just got really discouraged with that. You know, when when I saw the majority of when I saw the majority of gamers defect to massive multiplayer online games, when uh, some friends of mine um, went into uh, got into EverQuest. They'd handed me the uh, the book, and I started reading through it. And I'm like, first of all, this is conceptually, this is totally D and D first edition. Second of all, they didn't even spell check this. They <laughs> threw millions of dollars into the programming, and they didn't spell check the goddamn book. And I was like, you know, f when when um, when we would be you know greeted with a rousing silence from distributors. Eventually, I kind of got the uh, eventually I kind of got the attitude of, well. You know, the people just people don't want quality. They they want to kill orcs, and I know that's not entirely true. Uh, we did sell thousands of copies of Deliria, most of them hand to hand. But once it hit the store shelves, for the most part, it gathered dust uh, mm-hmm. because the the groundswell of people going, "Yes, my God, that's what we wanted," just never really happened. And the indie gamers are cool, are fun. I totally, I'm, I'm, I'm one of them. <laughs> I love them. And you can't sink a hundred grand into something and expect to make a living by playing to that audience. I kept hoping that audience would get bigger, but that the, uh, the audience just wasn't there to sustain it financially. So yeah, I mean, as far as, yeah, you're okay. right. You're right. I mean, I think gone are the days where you can take a game like vampire, the masquerade and turn it into a, a major company that's you know number three, number two in the industry. Um, yeah. I don't think that can happen anymore. But at the same yeah. time, I think that 
you know, it depends on how you define your success and, and what, what success is for you for that game. Um, certainly if what you're looking for is to actually be able to live off your game or to get some respect from the, in the industry, um, that's one thing. And then there's, there are people who are just happy to the fact that people play their game and, and the game breaks even, you know, <laughs> that's, that's all they care about. Um, and that's cool. I mean, there's nothing wrong with that. And it, and actually, I think to a certain extent, there is more artistically being done in situations where people feel like they're freed up to do whatever they want to do. You know, they have this overriding vision first, and then mm-hmm. they produce the game. And then, you know, that vision is what drives the game. I notice a lot of the indie, indie games don't have supplements. You know, they don't have... Um, you know, modules and players' handbooks and all the things which you and I both know are cash cows. Um, mm-hmm. Those are the things that the, the players' handbooks specifically. That's what made White Wolf all its money, um, mm-hmm. and yeah. it just doesn't get there. Mm-hmm. You're right, and and as far as as far as alternative markets, those things have changed significantly since 2006. Mm-hmm. And that's got me looking at the possibility of doing more things with, you know, with Delirium, with some future projects that I'm not at liberty to talk about right now. That I sure well, I have been looking into. Uh, oh, good. Yeah, sure. I understand. Well, what what um, as far as the um, what kind of things can we talk about now? I've I've picked out a couple of things. You're teaching. <laughs> you're you're teaching at uh, uh, Seattle. Uh, the Art Institute of Art. Seattle. Yeah, I teach I teach game design and animation at uh, at the Art Institute of Seattle, which I found that I really really love teaching, and awesome. they they seem to love me over there too. It's been very 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 successful relationship, and that's something I'd like to continue doing. I've been writing for for BBI Media for New Witch Magazine and Pangaea Magazine for mm-hmm. years. I think I think I'm going into five years now with New Witch. And New Witch, I want to do a shout out for Anne um, um, and um, uh, Newkirk Niven, who is the publisher of BBI Media, who is doing a lot of who's doing a, a lot of of, um, of work on the kind of the groundswell of neo paganism and the newest aspects of of a uh, a, a faith and you know spiritual movement and life you know well life culture really. Uh, she's putting a lot of energy and a lot of really, really good work out there in Pangaea magazine, um, uh, New Witch magazine, yeah. uh, Blessed Be, and Sage Woman. Sage Woman, um, yes. Yes, she's yeah. putting out, and, and her people are putting... I don't make much money from that, but it's a it's a company and a, and a job that I absolutely that I absolutely believe in and their magazines really worth checking out. Even if you're not pagan from a cultural and political standpoint, there's some really amazing stuff going on there. And um, and so when is the compilation of your articles going to come out? <laughs> I don't know. I, I might, I might at some point take the, my, my main column there is, is a, uh, a column called chalice and keyboard which is about paganism and popular culture, which I've been doing since I think 2003, 2004. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that column has been a blast. That column is the, uh, the one that I did the, or that I'm doing, I'm, I'm working on part three for that actually, but the, the, uh, the series on uh, uh, paganism and gaming, uh, I've also covered in there, I've covered music and uh, music and paganism, um, 
witch Barbie dolls, uh, mm. black metal and paganism, uh, the fairy movement, which I'm doing a uh, I'm doing another article for uh, for Pangaea on uh, the, the 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 neo the, the fairy neo Renaissance. Uh, mm. I have. I've also been doing the majority of the interviews for uh, for New Witch for the last two years. Two issues ago, I had done a uh, an interview with a pagan Iraq war vet, which generated a whole lot of attention and uh, scraped into the mainstream. Awesome. And I've been doing a lot of uh, music and re- music articles and reviews and things for them there as well. And that. Who knows? I might I might put together some kind of with with Anne's. Well, I, I retain the rights to it, so uh, Anne would yeah. probably let me uh, let me do that. Um, yeah, it's all about the remix, you know, and and uh, it's all about <laughs> context, right? Uh, putting things back yeah. into context, a different context, um, a different audience. And uh, what else are you working on? If there's, are there anything else you want to plug or talk about? Well, yeah, I've been doing uh, short stories. I've actually just sold a short story about two weeks ago to an upcoming compilation called Better Ass Fairies, uh, <laughs> which will be coming out in, I think, two or three months. I think the release for it is, uh, I think the release for it is this, uh, this June or July. Um, but yeah, I did a, did a story actually inspired by, by my, uh, by my, by my boom and bust days, uh, called Loopholes. Which is a story of uh, an Italian lawyer, the uh, the the the, uh, the fairy godfather, and the money ogre. The money ogre being a uh, an aspect of myself that I learned about on a really in depth level back when I was <laughs> when I was thousands of dollars in debt. Um, mm. No, I got a good story out of it. Uh, I have a story currently on the stands in the the current issue of Weird Tales and the compilation of uh, Weird Tales Voices of the 21st Century, which is a story called Ravenous, uh, based in my uh, my days back uh, playing in metal bands in in Richmond, Virginia. Cool. And, uh, which I mean, it's a toss up at this point as to which one is my favorite story at this point. Um, as I said, I've, I've been teaching, I just finished a screenplay called Crossways, which has several uh, producers and directors interested, and I am working on a uh, working on another screenplay, which was commissioned, um, I guess I have referred to it in print, but it's, it's the current working title is Forsaken, and I know it has nothing whatsoever to do with werewolves. <laughs> uh, that's all I can say about it, because that is a, uh, that's a client job, and Subject to all kinds of change, but Crossways was a, was a screenplay I wrote for myself and awesome. for, a, for a director who was interested in it, and that's got a lot of uh, a lot of good things. And I, I found actually that screenplays really agree with me, so uh, that's a, that's an industry that I may get more and more interested in now that my foot's in the door. And well, that, uh, that is rocking. Uh, and with. You know, it is funny how uh, White Wolf alums like uh, you and I have to uh, run things through a certain filter and and sort of take a look every so often and go, is this, you know, I, we don't want people to think that this is anything to do with the White Wolf thing that we did. You know, if we use yeah. a certain <laughs> word, I mean, I'm designing a game right now called Silken, and I'm having to constantly fight, fight the ideas of, okay, are people going to just say, oh, well, that's just... That's just vampire remade or whatever, you know. Mm-hmm. So you have to just, you have to do you do have to sort of free yourself from that. It takes a little while. Um, yeah. Well, one of the blessing and curses of the, of the work that we did with White Wolf is that White Wolf was so 
and this is one of those places where I want to give a real shout out to uh, um, to White Wolf back in its heyday, and even to a degree even now. White Wolf, when you and I were working with it, was a company very much dedicated to upsetting the apple cart and bringing art into games, especially subverting all, all the dominant paradigm on pretty much every level. And that at least for the early days, it was very much my experience that 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 we were encouraged to be as personal and as in-your-face and as subversive with what we were doing as we wanted to be, which in, at least in mine, I think yours, and I know a lot of other people's cases, led to us creating a very deeply personal world of darkness that became inextricably an, an extension of us. And I, I know I personally did, and I suspect you did, had a hard time finding out, well, I've put so much of myself into Mage and Werewolf what's left that they don't own. <laughs> yeah, no, yeah, it's true. And and it's just like that Billy Joel song, uh, uh, you know, essentially uh, they haven't taken everything, but paybacks are a bitch. <laughs> uh-huh. yeah, you know, yeah, basically, you know, and I had, to, I had to basically win back all that. And how I did it was a little different from how you did it in the sense that all I, I what I did is I wrote for free. And I started mm-hmm. giving away things, and I had to mm-hmm. write for free for a long time before I and tell myself, you know, this is not for publication. This is just for me, or this is for me and some friends, or whatever. But once I got to through that part, once I was able to, uh, you know, get through that initial silence, which I really wrestled with for many, many years, um, mm-hmm that that was when I was able to do things like go back and write for Steve Jackson or go back and write for Bill and at Fading Suns or uh Bill Bill for me I, I got I got to finally do a mage thing mm-hmm. uh Phil just before the end of mage I got to do Australia and that was so much fun uh and and was great cuz I I mean out of all the games of white white wolf games I ran um, during that time, I ran Mage um, the longest. I ran Mage for like three years, two mm-hmm. years, something like that. We had a huge scenario, and uh, I loved it. I just love. And Mage is still one of my very favorites. Man, I think Changeling's always going to be my number one favorite. Yeah. Mage is right next, right behind it, and Werewolf right behind that. So. Yeah, well, you were inextricably a part of Werewolf. That's that's something when when uh, when I talk to people about Werewolf, and they've said that the thing that they enjoyed most, the thing that really distinguished Werewolf, was the uh, was the spiritual aspect. I'm like, that was Sam Chop. You know, Bill <laughs> Bill came in and ran with it, but as I understand it, having not actually been in the office during the development of the original Werewolf, but um, as I understand it. You know, Mark wanted the Mark wanted the eco terrorist D and D. Rob wanted the uh, the tribal horror, and you brought in the spirit. And Werewolf wound mm-hmm. up as a synergy for those, a synergy of those that Bill ran with. Does that sound accurate? That's that's as I understand yeah. it. I mean, you know, I I was there. I love the spirit world, and I love the um, the Umbra and talking about it and. The the fantasy how it brought fantasy into the situation a lot uh, and 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 really things that you couldn't do normally, um, so yeah I mean I wrote the pack totems you know the very first I mean I put them at the end of the book because uh, of of werewolf because we were uh, funniest thing I mean I was laying out werewolf and we were in at the end of the process 
and we needed another signature. You know, we needed <laughs> another couple of pages to fill out the signature. <laughs> uh-huh. So uh, I wrote the pack totems at the very end, and that's what really made uh-huh. stuff yeah. happen. But um, mm-hmm. I mean, that was because I was drawing out things that were totems of various tribes, but also adding a few other things in there, and that was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. It, it gave people another little benefit. Um, but and I think that and the getting to do write a passage um, the way it was, which you know, uh, the that module was was a uh, the first game that a lot of people played uh, in yeah. Werewolf. So. Yeah, I mean, people still don't quite get. I, mean, I run into a lot of people who didn't quite get that they just saw it as a twinkish power gaming kind of thing. But uh, there are people who really do get the spirit aspect and uh, and, and get that that werewolf is a balance of mm-hmm. of all those things. But yeah, I really enjoy werewolf too. But you know, it's one of those things where I haven't run those games in so long now. Um. But I would love to. I, I, I could probably just pick up right where I left off with any mm-hmm. of them. <laughs> I, I yeah. feel like I could. I would love to play in a good mage game again. Uh, I, I briefly, I briefly encountered a, a mage game here in uh, here in Seattle, but they were running the Mage Third Edition. The everything mm-hmm. goes to hell, and you're running in the shadows, and and the technocracy is around every corner, and they're going to throw you in the in jail and stuff. And that just really, mm. that utterly didn't appeal to me. Um, the, yeah, I mean, as I grow older and as I get into a situation where I realize the horror that is really in this world, I really want for my recreation time there be there be hope and and good stuff. It can't just be it can't be bleak and running from the cops and you know trouble and difficulties. I mean, well, the big oh, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. Well, I think I think the biggest place where White Wolf really lost the plot. And this is like not to bash on them because in many ways this is this is years ago stuff. But it was was the point the point where those of us who laid down the original world of darkness were almost all gone. Actually, I think at that point we're all gone. Um, you know, after after Rob left, yeah, that was pretty much it. But when the people who had left who had done the original world of darkness left. The the people though there were still some very good people involved in there, especially uh, rather uh, Rich Dansky. You know that that there was this feeling of the the when, when we were there, there was this collaborative aspect. The, the the owners, the managers, the people in the warehouse, we were all getting together to work on something, and then the company ended up getting stratified. And when the people when the people who had been entrusted with the games the original line of developers were all gone and most of the original artists were gone and many of the original writers were gone suddenly the thing suddenly you know most of of that world of darkness wound up in the hands of sales and marketing and for a little while there there was a to stay in order to stay financially viable we need to sell as many copies of stuff as possible therefore sales and marketing says oh vampire sells make everything like vampire 
and I know that was starting to happen. It was one of the reasons I left, actually, was it was starting to creep in there even while I was still there. And that I know that was something that poor Jess, Jess got just steamrolled for, or steamrolled by, rather, mm. on, uh, on May 3rd edition. Jess himself was not allowed much creative freedom with it. He was told by other parties, you will do this, you will do this, you will do it like this, you will do it like this. And he admittedly did a half-assed job of it because his heart wasn't in it because other people were telling him how it had to be. And it, it really wound up as a, a fairly unsuccessful effort because people were trying to make it something, they're trying to make made something that it wasn't, um, which was a, a, you know, a game about paranoia and despair where mage had always been about making a, making a better world in the shadow of disaster. Mm-hmm. When, when the technocracy, quote unquote, when the technocracy, quote unquote, won, suddenly the balance, which had been in the original Mage First Edition for for the listeners here, in the original Mage First Edition, the technocracy was this overwhelming but not completely in power force. When I took over Mage and started making, um, and to clarify for people who don't know this, I took over after the second supplement of Mage, or took up took over during the second supplement of Mage. The first supplement was actually a um, uh, an adventure written by Sam. Um, when I when I picked up with the second supplement, I started tilting the balance so that suddenly the technocracy wasn't in control of reality, that the traditions, technocracy, Nefandi, and Marauders were all struggling with one another um, for who would write the rules for reality, that the technocracy had an upper hand but was but had not won the game, that um, that there was, as Mage went on, as the, the Ascension War went on, you can trace it through the supplements, that the balance of power was shifting because all four traditions, technocracy, Nefandi, and Marauders, represented extremes that were corrupt. All four of them were, were entities in which everyone was going, I know the right way, the only way, the true way, and so all four of them were intrinsically corrupt and self-limiting. Um, all four of them had sown the seeds of their own destruction, and in the the, uh, the Ascension Warrior trilogy, um, old sins and new sins came back to uh, came back to devastate uh, three of those four factions, and uh, Doisatap, which had been become this this uh, calcified uh, symbol of everything mm-hmm. that was wrong with the traditions, uh, Autocathonia, or rather, uh, uh, not not Autocathonia. Um, God, I've forgotten the name of the iteration at Rome. Um, but I don't remember case, either. <laughs> but they were the the uh, the realms that were the embodiments of corruption mm. within the traditions and technocracy fell. The technocracy was literally go- going to war within itself with the um, um, uh, the the Project Invictus thing when when the technocracy recognized that it had been infiltrated by the Nefandi and. Agents within the technocracy basically declared war on the technocracy leadership with Project Invictus. Um, when the tech, when the when the traditions lost many of their masters, turned around and realized, oh my God, we've become everything that we hate. That was right around the time, and also tying in with this, well, the uh, the digital web crashed, for, uh, forcing the uh, the virtual adepts to fracture and go. You know, are we going to be anarchists? Or are we going to take care of our shit? Um, mm-hmm. and, and where's, where's the line there between, you know, being what we hate and, and, 
having you know an, a, an active amount of control. And then I tied that in with Mage the Sorcerer's Crusade, which reset the Ascension War to the very beginning, where we discovered that all four of the all four of the groups had had uh, had the same roots in an in an ancient organization, and that the uh, that the technocracy in its in its original incarnation as the Order of Reason had actually been on many levels more mystical and more occult than than the traditions had. Mm-hmm. And I, I started showing those common roots and started tearing out the foundation of what people believed Mage was about, you know, in terms of the uh, the factions and everything. And then all of that just got completely thrown out with Mage 3rd Edition because the people who insisted, told Jess, do this, do this, do this, hadn't actually read Mage. Right. They just said, make it more like Vampire, make it hopeless, and, you know, make it grim. And mm. Jess was literally told, this is something I don't mind saying publicly, Jess was literally told that if he wanted to keep his job, he had to do things the way people told him to do them. Wow. And I, that, is, that is why I broke ties with White Wolf. One of those yeah. things that, that people may or may not know, I continued working for, with White Wolf for a year and a half after I left the staff. I, mean, I continued to uh, to develop Sorcerer's Crusade and continued to develop Mage and was remained on very good terms with most of the people in White Wolf until Jess was told by people who hadn't actually read Mage in years, if at all, that they had to that he had to do things their way or or get fired. At that point, I quit working with them and stopped working with them for years wow. because that wasn't just it wasn't just a betrayal to me. It was a betrayal to Jess, and it was a betrayal to Mage and Mage's fans. Well, yeah, I, I'm thinking about gone. the fans here. Yeah. You know, I'm thinking about how the fans in that situation. I mean, one of the big reputations White Wolf uh, got a hold of was um, this concept of sort of not caring what the fans think or or what's going on with the fans. I mean, just basically thinking that. If we put it out, they'll buy it. They they have to. It's White Wolf. Yeah. yeah. Well, and unfortunately, this is one of those places where I got discouraged with gamers in general. Was yeah, and they see, wouldn't have had that attitude if people didn't keep proving them right. Yeah, and see, the thing of it is, I don't, I don't know that. I mean, I I think that to a certain extent, um, I don't know. I just don't know about that. I I wonder. I mean, I, I, I want to just, I guess I just want to believe that gamers were buying things and they were continuing to participate in the process because they expected that, you know, they wanted things to get better. They expect they would hang in there, you know, to see, okay, well, what, a, you know, I'm loyal to this game. I, I've been playing this game for a long time. I know what it's like on the other end. I mean, when you're sitting there, you're playing a game, stuff is coming out for the game. You want to buy that stuff to support the game. Um, you feel obligated to know what's in it. I mean, just like this whole business mm-hmm. with D and D Fourth Edition, I have no interest at all in playing D and D Fourth Edition. Yeah. But uh, but to a certain extent, I feel obligated as a gamer to like know what it is. And mm-hmm. um, you know, I really enjoy. I have enjoyed playing D and D three three point five. Well, at one point, I was running that for my kids and for their friends, and then I realized later that. Guess what? I'm not really playing D and D by the rules. Like uh-huh. if, if I, <laughs> you know, if I were actually playing D and D, I would be playing by the rules. I mean, that's what it means to play D and D, right? You you roll. I mean, you're if you're not if you're playing some other game 
then just be honest and say, look, this is not D&D anymore. This is some other game that I'm uh-huh. playing. <laughs> this is a new game that we've created out of the ashes of D&D. Um, <laughs> Yeah. And and go on and just be honest about that. But um, I don't know. At any rate, I guess what I'm trying to say is I, I I think that the kind of that kind of criticism is basically focused on not just I think it's it's it it is it goes back to that consumerist concept because I think a lot of people are a lot of gamers are very much completists. And they're mm-hmm. they're collectors because we we all know that gaming is a hobby just like needlepoint, mm-hmm. uh, needlecrafts. It's the yeah. same. It's a very much like that in the sense that there are people who do needlecrafts and there are people who collect needlecraft books, <laughs> and they're two separate <laughs> hobbies. There are people who yeah. have loads and loads more needlecraft books than they'll ever ever use. And just like <laughs> me, I have loads and more loads of more uh, game books that I'll than I'll ever use. Uh, but I think that's part of what it was. You've been listening to an episode of the Bears Grove Podcast. The Bears Grove Podcast is brought to you in our Creative Commons license attribution. No derivatives, no commercial use. You can find out more about the Bears Grove podcast at bearsgrove.com. You can email me directly with feedback at bearsgrove at gmail.com. Thank you very much. The music you'll be listening to now is from Hannah. It's called Rain and White Jasmine. <laughs>